So I ask you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Last week we looked at chapter 7, verse 24, through chapter 8, verse 10. And in that section, we actually saw that the gospel is for you too. It's not just for the religious elite. It's not just for those who are called Israel. But Jesus goes to Gentiles. And he has this audacious conversation with this Gentile woman. And this woman, if you can recall, exercised such great faith in Jesus that he says, your daughter is healed. This was an audacious conversation because of her boldness and the seeming craftsmanness of the content of it. And then we saw that the gospel is for you too in this astonishing cure that Jesus gives to this man who is deaf and who is mute in his speech. And Jesus goes to this Gentile man and heals him. And then we also saw that the gospel was for you too through the aggressive compassion that Jesus exercised on 4,000 people who were mostly Gentiles and with seven pieces of bread feeds this entire myriad of people. And what Jesus is saying, He's saying, I love you. I'm willing to accept you. If you will have faith in me, you can be a part of my family and you can be redeemed. And I would just say as a reminder to you today and as an encouragement to you, that Jesus would say to every person in this congregation, I love you, I'm willing to accept you, come to me in faith, and you can be part of my family. And so let's read chapter 8, verse 11, through chapter 9, verse 1. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now when they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves to the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. 
And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so the, the spotlight goes off of the Gentiles and it goes back squarely on the disciples and on the Jews who approached Jesus during this time. And the searching question that Jesus has for His disciples is, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand who I am? Do you not yet understand my true identity? Do you not understand what God has called me to do? Do you not understand what my mission is? And do you not understand what your mission is in light of my mission? And the resounding answer to Jesus' question here in chapter 8 is no. They don't understand. They know He's from God, but the fact is they don't have full spiritual eyesight. They see Him, but they don't see Him clearly. They hear His message, but they don't listen intently to the deeper meaning behind it. They behold all the wonderful things that He does, but the more He does them, the more it seems they're becoming calloused to them so that their spiritual eyesight is blurry, it's, it's hazy, it's not clear. And I just want to tell you right off the bat today that Jesus is determined to bring people from spiritual blindness all the way to clear, full spiritual sight. And He is unwilling, He is unwilling and unsatisfied to let people live somewhere in the middle. Alright? And so He wants to bring everybody from blindness all the way to full spiritual sight. And the reason that Jesus wants to do this is because He knows that if you and I have partial spiritual sight, 
then we will have a partial Christian life. And if we have a partial Christian life, we will have partial joy in Him. We will have partial wisdom. And we will have partial zeal for His honor and His glory. And He knows that God is worthy of full glory and full honor and full praise. And He knows that He wants for His Father, for everyone to bow before Him with everything that they've got and everything that they are and say, worthy is He who is king. And so I can give a personal testimony about this. Um, I, for so many years, had partial spiritual sight. Like, I read about Jesus and I liked what I read. I loved his wisdom. I loved his teaching. I read the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over. I, I, when, I remember when I was a teenager, I actually read the Gospel of Mark. I want to tell you what I, what, I, what I remember about thinking about the Gospel of Mark. I remember thinking, man, I love his leadership. I love his servanthood. I love his wisdom. I love his miracles. I love the way that he can influence people and he can turn a phrase. What I don't love is so much time that Mark spends on the suffering, the blasphemy, the ridicule, the blood, the cross, and the resurrection. I remember thinking that reading the book. Why did I think that? Because I had partial spiritual sight. I saw Jesus' leadership ability. I said, I want to be like that. But I was... I just was put off by the blood. I was put off by the cross. I was put off by all that other stuff. And I want to just give testimony today of praise to God that He was unwilling to let me stay in that state of seeing Jesus as a great leader, as a great man, as a great teacher. And He showed me how beautiful and glorious the blood of His cross was. Because He was unwilling to let me live my whole life only seeing a part of Jesus. And so... Here's a principle for you. The more you see the glory of Christ, the more you can magnify the glory of Christ. But the less you see of His glory, the less you see of His beauty, the, the less you see of His splendor and His majesty, the less you can actually magnify His worth. If you didn't know Jamie, if you didn't know my wife, and you and I met, and I introduced her to you, and I said, this is Jamie. She is my wife. And that's all you knew. Well, you would know her, and you would know that she was my wife. But if I introduced her to you, and I said, this is the woman who has been faithful to me for 17 years. She has put up with my self-centeredness and my pride and my spiritual self-righteousness, but she has also been willing to follow my leadership. She was willing to uproot everything that she knew and all that she was comfortable with to leave here and go to Los Angeles, California for me to be trained for four years. And when we got back, she was willing to um, uproot our uh, safety and the, and the um, security of a regular church to plant this church with no promise of financial security and that she has given every fiber of her being for two years in order to serve this body and to be a part of the church and she is a faithful mother of three boys. Would you know her a little better? Would you appreciate her a little more? We've been married 17 years this, uh, this weekend, and so I felt the liberty to honor her uh, that way. <laughs> um, yeah. But you can magnify her worth now that you know her 
rather than, than you just knowing that she is my wife. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit wants you and I to see the full glory of Jesus so that we can magnify His worth and not live in blindness and not live in spiritual, uh, spiritual partial sight. And so guys, I just want you to look down at chapter 8 because what Mark does is something really unique here. He sandwiches some really important teaching and really important instruction of Jesus right in the middle with a physical healing. And he does this in verses 22 through 26 to be a physical illustration of the spiritual realities that he's trying to bring to his people. And so this morning what I want, I want you to do is I want you to see that Jesus is intent on bringing us from blindness to partial sight all the way to full sight. And he, and, he, and he shows us this through this physical illustration in 22 to 26. And so look down at those verses, and he, and he gives us this spiritual, this physical illustration. And he wants us to see really three things. Mark wants us to show us three things in the healing of this man who is blind. He wants us to see his blindness. The man can't see anything. And then he wants us to see his partial sight. He, he, he now can see, but... He sees men like trees that are walking around. And then he wants us to see full sight. He wants us to see that the man's eyes are open, that his sight is restored, and that he can see everything clearly. Now, there are three unique things that happen in this miracle that don't happen anywhere else. All right? So if you just look down at the text, the first thing that, that happens is that Jesus asked the man a question. Okay, after he has spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, what question does Jesus ask? Do you see anything? Jesus never asked that question to anybody else that he heals. Uh, do you feel anything? Or can you walk? Or you know, all these other things. How's the bread taste? You know, he doesn't ask questions. This is the only time that he asks a question for a miracle that he performs. The second unique thing is that there is a partial healing. I mean, we have seen in chapter 2 where Jesus causes a man who is paralyzed to stand up and walk out the front door. We saw in chapter 5 where he takes this demon-possessed man who has myriads of demons inside of him and just throws them out into a herd of pigs and the man goes from a demon-possessed, crazed maniac into a worshiper of Jesus. We have seen him um, raise the dead in Talitha and when he says, just little girl, arise. We have seen him do these complete healings and these complete miracles and all of a sudden... It's like Jesus has lost his full power. He's lost his, he's, he's losing his edge. No, that's not the point here. The point here in the partial healing is he making a spiritual truth. But the, the third unique thing about this, this um, account is that this, he has a second touch. There's a second touch that Jesus puts upon this man that brings him all the way to spiritual sight. And I'm absolutely convinced that this is Jesus' way of showing that the disciples need a second touch. The disciples need more illumination. They need the power of Jesus to come into them and reveal fully who He is. So that's the physical illustration. Let's go back to the top and look at the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality that we're going to see here is blindness, partial sight, full sight. Blindness, partial sight, full sight and we see this beginning in verse 11 
First of all, blindness. We see blindness in the Pharisees and blindness in the disciples. In verses 11 to 13, look at the blindness of the Pharisees. All right, they, they demonstrate their blindness in a few ways. First of all, they lack humility. And you see it right there in verse 11. They came and began to argue with him. They don't come to listen to him. They don't come to be instructed in the gospel by him. They lack humility here. They're coming to argue with him. They come to dispute with him. They have a hostile disposition toward the Lord Jesus. And not only that, they come and they seek a sign. All right? They come as judges who sit upon their throne and with their gavel in hand, and they are ready to strike a judgment against Jesus. Never mind the plethora of authenticating markers that Jesus has already laid out in his life. Never mind all of the healing. Never mind all of the authoritative teaching. Never mind the compassionate heart. Never mind the way that he serves and loves both Gentiles and, and Jews alike. Never mind all of those things. They're here to seek a sign. And they're not saying simply that if you show us something awesome, then we're going to believe in you. What they're saying is, show us a sign, give us a prophecy, so that when we see that it's not fulfilled, we can ultimately and finally condemn you for who we think that you are, a demon of Satan. And so Jesus is, is clearly disappointed uh, by their blindness. I mean, look, Mark tells us as much. You see the physical expression of Jesus? He sighs deeply in his spirit. Uh, he's angry. He's grieved. You see the rhetorical question that he asks, why does this generation seek a sign? He knows why they seek a sign. Because they have a heart of unbelief. They have callousness that's built up around them that is unwilling to yield themselves to Jesus. And then he makes this condemning statement. He says, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And what does he do? He, he just abruptly departs. He leaves them. And I couldn't help but think, y'all, that he's basically doing what he told his disciples to do a few chapters ago when he says, go from village to village, and anybody who does not accept you or your message, you simply wipe the dust off of your feet and keep on going. And there, here they are, the Pharisees, not accepting his message, and he leaves. He departs them because they will not accept him. It is. Now, I want to tell you, it's very important for us to understand just from that little text right there that Jesus wants us to know that we're not the judge. We're not the judge. All right? You do not sit in a chair that is high above Jesus and your job is not to evaluate Him, to judge His credentials, to say, you know what, I'm not sure about Him. I'm going to think about Him a little bit more. And if I find myself a little bit more inclined to follow His ways and listen to His teaching, I think I may do that. But the verdict is still out on Him. No. Listen, He, he has shown Himself who He is. He, he made the world. He made you. He fashioned you in His own likeness but you messed things up. You, you sinned. You followed the way of your, your forefather Adam and mother Eve and you walked in rebellion against Him. And what Jesus says is, I'm going to come and I'm going to enter my creation and I'm going to love you and I'm going to live perfectly and righteously and I'm going to die sacrificially and I'm going to be raised powerfully from the dead so that all who put their faith in my perfect work and my perfect righteousness and my resurrection from the dead will be saved. And so... He's saying to us, don't judge me. 
If anybody is the judge, I'm the judge. Just yield yourself to me. Worship me. Humble yourself before me. And I, I want to tell you that I think fact number two is that one of the chief signs of, of, of spiritual blindness is an attitude of arrogance toward Jesus. I think that's what we see in the Pharisees and that's what we see in the world today. Mark wants us to see their blindness. He wants us to see their obstinance. But he also wants us to see that the Pharisees aren't the only ones who are blind. Look down at verse 14. He also wants us to see that the, the disciples are blind as well. Just look. I mean, we, we just read it. They don't prioritize spiritual truth. They, they forgot to bring bread, and so they're all concerned about it. They're, they're in an uproar. Oh, we forgot bread. There's only one loaf. What are we going to do? We're going to starve. Oh, man, Peter, that was your job. You know, Peter said, no, that was your job, uh, Andrew. What is going on here? Now we're going to starve out here in the middle. That's just, they're uptight about this. And Jesus actually says to them, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, some of you know more about leaven than others do. But essentially what the leaven represented was um, when a person would be um, baking bread before they would stick all of the bread uh, all of the dough into the oven to be cooked, it would take a portion of that bread before it's cooked out, put it in a container, and then put juices and stuff on it and, and um, put it up, maybe in a cupboard somewhere, and let it ferment so that it could be used next time when they bake bread so that it would rise, so that it would um, fill the entire piece of bread, and it was just a process. But leaven came to be represented among Jews and Hellenists alike for corruption. For corruption, because it was easily corrupted. And when it would have this bacteria, or it, would have, it was carrying something that was tainted or bad, what it would do is it would spread throughout the entire loaf, so that no matter what piece of bread that you had in that loaf, it would be tainted, it would be bad, and you could get sick. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, beware of the corruption of the Pharisees. Beware of the corruption of Herod, because it will taint you. And it looks to be that it's tainting the disciples already. Because here they are, they have witnessed Jesus feed 5,000 with just a few loaves. They see him again feed 4,000 with seven loaves. And here they are in the boat with the man who is a bread maker himself. And they are uptight and anxious about not having enough food. And when he makes a spiritual statement, he gives a spiritual reality, all their concern is about the material and the physical, and they're unwilling to go to the spiritual truth behind what he's trying to say. And so they don't prioritize spiritual truth. They don't understand Jesus' teaching about the leaven. And they don't trust Jesus' ability to provide for them because they don't see Him for who He is. And so while the Pharisees manifest their blindness in one way, they, they accuse Jesus, they're hostile toward Jesus, and they judge Jesus, the disciples manifest their blindness in another way. They focus on the material over the physical. They trust in themselves rather than in Jesus. They get anxious about not having enough when they've got the one who is willing to provide uh, them with everything. And so I want to make this statement about spiritual blindness. You don't have to be outside the church to be spiritually blind. 
So you can go to church faithfully every Sunday. You can listen to the sermons. You can have conversations. You can have the answers to the questions. You can even know how to frame a prayer that sounds right and good and doctrinally accurate. But all it takes to be spiritually blind is for you to prioritize material and physical things over the spiritual reality of the person of Jesus Christ. All it takes for you to be spiritually blind is to be anxious and worried about your own life and how you're going to provide for yourself and not thrust yourself and cast yourself upon Jesus in faith. All it takes to be spiritually blind is to be more concerned with things that you can see and feel and touch and grasp than the reality of Jesus Christ as the glorious King. And so my prayer this week as I've been studying this passage is that for all the people who know all the right answers and can say all the right things but don't have the spiritual reality of trusting Jesus and believing in Him, would today have the blinders come off of their eyes, the scales ripped off, and see Jesus for the first time for who He really is in His beauty and in His glory and say, I see you, Jesus. I cast myself before you. I come to you in worship and I trust you with everything. Now, spiritual blindness is paralyzing and if you don't do something about it, you will learn to live in spiritual blindness and you'll convince yourself that you can see. That's what happened with the disciples. And Jesus was so concerned about it. And I just want to tell you guys today that there are thousands of dead churches that are meeting right now all across the world. And they sing the words of Jesus. They read the words of Jesus. They say Jesus in their prayers but because they're unwilling to give up their tight grip on their selves, on their lives, on their materials, on the way that they can control things, their churches are dead. And I just want you to know that I do not want a dead church. I want a church that is alive, that sees, and, and, is, and is absolutely bent on giving Jesus Christ the glory He is worth. Now He moves from, from blindness to partial sight. Alright, so... We, we see the story in verses 22 to 26, um, and then we see in verse 27 to 33, we see this partial sight um, issue. And so Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi, and he initiates this, this conversation with the disciples. Now, before we kind of go right into it, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that changed your life? Think about it for a moment. I have had probably three to five conversations that changed my life, that changed the trajectory, that changed... I, I can think of a number of them. I know one of them was the decision that we made to go off to California to seminary. And I remember sitting in a man's office. I remember what time of day it was. I remember the surroundings. And I remember what he finally said. He said, Ryan, I, I can't tell you what to do. I don't even know what you should do. But if God has called you to do it, then do it. And I remember walking out of his office that day, and my mind and my heart and my life was fixed on California because I wanted to be trained. 
It changed the trajectory of my life. Now, I don't know if you've had any conversations like that that changed you. But this conversation, this interaction with Jesus that we, from, that we see from 27 all the way to down, down to chapter 9, verse 1, is a life changer. It's transformational. It absolutely changes the trajectory, the feeling, the mindset of the disciples. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. And so, I think we want to see, first of all, that in this partial sight, that Jesus initiates this conversation with the disciples. He does not wait on them to come to Him. He comes to them because He knows that if He waits on them, they'll never come in full sight. I think it's just worth noting that everything that is good and spiritual and eternal and redemptive and salvific in mind in your life, Jesus initiated it. Jesus initiated His revelation of Himself to you when you began to be illuminated to His glory. He initiated His love to you in coming to the the world and living the life that you should live but won't and dying the death that you deserve and and then raising from the dead. He initiated His love to you. He initiated your redemption. And and even though you were in the pit of despair and in the pit of, of depravity and in the pit of rebellion, He came to you and He said, let me pull you out of there. And so Jesus is the initiator of all good and spiritual things, just like He is with the the disciples here. And so Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And so people basically say that Jesus is a messenger, right? Like He's John the Baptist, He's Elijah, He's Isaiah, He's Jeremiah, He's Ezekiel, He's somebody, all right? But y'all, let's make the observation that there is a marked difference between all of those guys and Jesus. I mean, if you stacked up their credentials and the power and the teaching of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, and John the Baptist, and you weighed them all against who Jesus is and what He has done, I mean, the scales are tipped big time, right? But it is another sign that they just don't see. And so the people can't see Jesus for who He is. But So so Jesus says, okay, that's who people say that I am. Who do you say that I am? And this is a watershed moment in Peter's life, in the disciples' life, and in the Gospel of Mark. I want you to know that this is the midway point of the whole book. Right here. This is the center point. And the only time beforehand that Jesus has been called the Christ is in chapter 1, verse 1. And so what Mark has been doing is showing that the identity of Jesus has been veiled. The identity of Jesus has not been seen by anyone and Jesus has not even been projecting that upon everybody in all of its fullness. And at this point, this is the watershed moment. This is the moment in which everything in the Gospel of Mark begins to turn toward the cross. It begins to turn toward Golgotha and say, right now Jesus is on a mission and He is saying, I am going to reveal myself more to the disciples so that they can know who I am, what my mission is, and who they are and what their mission is. And so what does Jesus say? I mean, what does Peter say? He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, Jesus. And Peter is exactly right. Peter is saying, you are the anointed one. You are the promised one. 
You are, you are the one who has been elected by God. You have been foreordained by God to come and deliver your people, to rule and to reign, to, to sit upon high and to be served, to right every wrong, to crush all your enemies, to cure all diseases, to bring justice to everyone. You are the Christ that has been promised. You are the Christ that has been prophesied about for hundreds and thousands of years. You are Him. And the fact is, Peter is right except that he's partially wrong, right? Like he sees the identity and it's right, but he doesn't understand the nature of the Christ. He doesn't understand the character of this Christ. He is completely wrong about the mission of the Messiah. And so what does Jesus do? If you look down at the text, Jesus reveals his Messiahship. And it's not one of ruling and reigning above, but it is serving and suffering underneath. And Jesus says, I must... I must, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. All right? I must do this. And I think it's very important for us to see the word must and to understand that it is a necessity. Jesus doesn't simply say, I'm going to express my Messiahship in a unique way. It's going to be very interesting to behold because I've kind of chosen a route that is going to be a little different than what you would expect. No, Jesus is saying, that if you want to have a Savior, if you want to have a Redeemer, if you want to have a Messiah, if you want to be in relationship with the royal King, you've got to understand that it is a necessity for me to suffer, for me to be rejected, for me to die, for me to shed my blood, and then ultimately for me to be raised from the dead. There's no other way around it because you need to be forgiven. You need to be redeemed. And there is no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. That's, that's the message that Jesus is bringing. And, and Peter's absolutely stunned by it. He, he is devastated. Um, I remember I got a phone call in my early 20s that my best friend, my mentor, the man who discipled me, the man who I looked up to the most in my life, called me and just said, um, Ryan, my wife and I are separated. I'm living in a hotel. We're going to get a divorce. This was a man who was on the cover of a Christian magazine as man of the year. And when I got that news, I was devastated. I hung up the phone. And I was like, no, th this is not right. I mean, all of my hope and who I want to be like and how I want to walk and how I want to have, that's all bound up in what you look like and what you are. And you're telling me all of that is destroyed? That can't be. And I lived a week or two in like devastation. And I just want you to know that the way that I felt then doesn't pale in comparison to the way that Peter feels when he hears that the Messiah is going to be rejected by spiritual leaders, that he's going to suffer at their hands, that he's going to die and be buried in a tomb. It's devastating. It just doesn't fit his paradigm. And so what Jesus wants to do is he said that's the only way that forgiveness can happen. That's the only way that redemption can possibly happen. Let me tell you guys... Um, if I were to borrow Ben's car today, and I would say, I just need to run an errand, Ben, and, um, and so I, I head out on Friendship Road, and let's just say I was kind of going to maybe uh, Publix or something, 
and I start um, reading a text message and start trying to text and I get so caught up in that that I lose sight of the wheel and I veer off to the right and I crash Ben's car into Friendship Community Center. And I ultimately do $6,000 worth of damage to his car. Now, this has created a separation between Ben and I. <laughs> and so this, this is really the options. The option is, is I can work and toil and find my way to get $6,000 in order to re repair Ben's car, get it back like it was, so that the relationship between Ben and I can be restored. Or, or I can depend on Ben to forgive me of this event, for him to wipe the slate clean and say, it's okay, Ryan, we're reconciled. Now, if he does the latter, which would be very generous of him, is his willingness to reach out to me and say, it's okay, things are settled, it's done, I've forgiven you, is that without suffering on his part? No. He has to pay a huge price in order for forgiveness and reconciliation to happen. Guys, it's logical. Jesus can't be our Messiah. He can't be our Redeemer. We can't be forgiven and reconciled without a price to be paid. There's got to be a price. And either we pay it or He pays it. And I just want to tell you, we can't pay it. We can't work hard enough. We can't do a good enough things in order to repay all that we've done to His glory and His honor and His fame. And so we have to depend on a Messiah who's willing to, at great cost and great expense on His part, to say, I'm willing to make things right to bring forgiveness to you. And so, this is the most shocking and disturbing thing that Peter has ever heard in his life, but it's absolutely true. And what does Peter do? If you just look down at the text, y'all, see, where are we? Verse, uh, yeah, 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. I want you to know that this word rebuke is the same exact term that Mark uses when Jesus rebukes demons who are possessing individuals. Peter is rebuking Jesus in the way that Jesus has rebuked demons. He is saying to Jesus, you are wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. Get your mind right, Jesus. And so Jesus turns around and He says, get behind me, Satan. Because the last person who sought to rebuke me and to offer something to me apart from suffering and apart from death and apart from me being a Redeemer was Satan himself. If you can remember in Luke 4, in Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus to rule and reign apart from suffering. And that's exactly what Peter is doing with Jesus. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. And y'all, just I want to give you one principle here. Anybody who offers you a crown without a cross is not from God, but from Satan. So you turn on the television this afternoon and watch your little Christian television, and they offer to you something that is beautiful and glorious and sweet, but it has no cost to you and it had no cost to Jesus, you can believe that that comes from hell and not from heaven. If you think of your life 
as sweet roses and you just leap from one cloud to the other. Alright? I can tell you that that is not from heaven. That is from hell. Because Jesus does not offer a crown apart from the cross. And so, this is what I want you to know. Peter exercises partial sight here. Yes, he's the Christ. Yes, he's the Messiah. But he doesn't see Jesus exactly for who he is and for exactly what he is doing. And so Jesus just lets it all out. If you look at verse 34 and following, Jesus is is here to give full sight, full revelation. He is saying, this is what it is going to be. This is who I am. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he says to them, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Essentially, what Jesus is saying through this discourse is this, is that I am the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I am the abandoned and and suffering person in Psalm 22. I am the ram who was caught in a thicket in Genesis chapter 2 when Abraham was offering up Isaac. And he sees the ram and he uses the ram in order instead of his son. I am the suffering servant. And I am going to fulfill my Messiahship by suffering and dying. And I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be nailed to it. And I'm going to redeem you and your life from the pit. And I'm going to raise you up and then I'm going to call you I'm going to call you to live a life of self-denial. I'm going to call you to live a life of denying your self-promoting, self-exalting, self-preserving nature. I'm going to ask you to give all of that up and follow after me and the way of the cross. And I'm going to show you that there is glory in that and there is ultimate honor and praise in that when your life is over. And that's what he calls them to. And so what he's doing, he's pulling back the veil, he's laying all his cards on the table, and he's telling everyone what his mission is and what their mission is if they choose to accept it. Now, chapter 9, verse 1, is an, inter- is an interesting verse, and it does go with this section, and many people have been, uh, have been given, have, have given uh, explanations as to what Jesus is saying. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, there are those who believe that he's actually referring to his transfiguration, which Mark is actually about to show us in chapter 9. Some believe it is referring to his second coming, and some even believe that that happened at some point uh, before the, the disciples believed. There are other various interpretations. But I believe that the simplest and the best interpretation of what Jesus is actually saying here on the heels of this call to discipleship is to say that when you see me suffering on the cross, when you see me shedding my blood for your sins, when you see me put in the tomb, and on the third day when you see that the tomb is empty, that I'm risen from the dead, and I have defeated all the powers of darkness, and when you see me commission you and you see me ascend into glory and then when ultimately you see my spirit descend and fill you as tongues of fire and you begin to have the power you begin to have the authority that I myself have had as I've walked the earth you will see my glory and so he's saying yes I left glory and now I'm going to suffer but once I'm finished suffering I'm going to show you glory and you're going to partake in it 
And this is the full sight that he wants his disciples to come into. Now, this is what I want to do. I'd like for you to just have your eyes up toward me. And, and let's, let's land the plane right now. And let's do a little self-evaluation. Because there is a sense in which everybody in this building right now is in one of three boats. You're either spiritually blind, you have spiritual sight, partial spiritual sight, or you have full sight and you see Jesus for who He is. If you're spiritually blind, you've never seen Jesus in such a way that you said, I want to give my life to Him. I want to believe in Him and trust in Him, and I see that His way is the only way. And today I would call you to believe in Him. I'd call you to give your life to Him today. He is willing to take off the blinders. He is willing to take off the scales that you might, for the first time, revel in His glory. Now, partial sight. Some of you have been singing songs. You've been reading words. You've been attending services for weeks or months or years. And you've yet to really behold Jesus and His ministry and everything that He is. And I just want to say, have you seen Him today? Have you seen Him for who He really is? And are you willing to give up your vice grip on your life? Are you willing to give up the fact that you are not the master of your own ship? That you are not the captain of your own boat? But rather He is. And it's better for you to submit to His captainship. It is better for you to submit to His Lordship rather than to you hold on to your own. Because partial Christianity is no Christianity at all. And I want to say, if for many of you, and I know most of you, maybe, even, have full sight, and you're living for His glory, and you love Him, and you are trying, you're trying your best by the power of the Holy Spirit to exalt Him. And I know there are many who are in that boat right now I want to say that in another sense, in another sense, you and I are in all three of these boats. I can testify to it in my own life that even in my Christian life, I have been blind to the greatness and glory of Jesus for years until I yielded myself fully to Him. I have had partial sight in areas where I'm like, you know, yes, I know that about Jesus and I know that about my life and so I'm living rightly and then I look back on it three years later, I'm like, I was so stupid. I was so foolish. What did I think that I had this thing gripped? I didn't have a clue. I think about things like marriage, parenting, humility, servanthood to others. And so I want to ask you all who have full sight, in what areas are you blind? In what areas do you have partial sight? And I want to ask you right now to bow your heads and in humility before King Jesus, I want you to open your heart and open your mind to what Jesus wants to reveal to you right now. And if you would dare, ask Him to make your blind eyes see.